Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me, as always, is my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you? I am, as Walker said, Mark Bigney, and I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. We have a small amount of updates directly from the mouth of the designer. We've been talking about the Cosmic Frog expansion, Find Muck, published by Devious Weasel Games, which is chock full of content. It really is a small box full of all manner of, of lovely, lovely things. Two full sets of ability cards, extra dice, even though it introduces a new chip resolution mechanism, which is actually chunky chips. Anyway, I characterize my experiences with it as wanting it to be a modular expansion. Turns out it is. It has been confirmed both in public announcement and private discourse that it isn't. it was intended as a modular expansion. Just the term wasn't ready at hand when the game was published. This was not a, a, a term that the publisher was familiar with, and so it wasn't characterized as such. And so now, we are going to be entering stage two of the Find Mike Exploration. Stage two! What's stage two? Stage two is determining which modules to keep and which modules not to use. I'm looking forward to it because, as I've commented before, Find Muck adds a number of things that I very, very much enjoy, a couple of things that we didn't really get around to using as much as you might think, and some things that I thought were perhaps one or two steps above a level of rules complexity to payoff ratio so that I probably wouldn't use them on the reg. And so now... It's the flow to fun ratio. And it's not... Let me just be perfectly clear. This isn't just... This isn't because I need a designer's permission to go around and tinker. It's just now I can do so with the confidence that I'm not straying from some kind of a balance consideration that I, I'm not in a position to anticipate going uh, at the outset or number two, straying from the designer's original vision. And when it comes to devious weasel, I care a lot about the designer's original vision because, oh my goodness, it's always a wild one featuring things such as two mile high and vulnerable cosmic frogs that regurgitate, disgorge, and on occasion projectile vomit. Anyway, that's been your Find Muck update. We're going to talk about board games this week, mix things up a little bit, talk a little bit less about Reign of Digestive Systems. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game. Our feature game this week, Walker, is Expeditions by Jamie Stegmaier at Stonemeyer Games. Exciting. I, for one, am very excited. I have tingles all over. Oh, wait, no, 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 my foot's just waking up. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we get the normal lineup come to the table again this week. We got Don't Llama Dice and Scout to the table again. Let's let's not we, gloss over this, got, Walker. We've got the first time we had like a double bust. Yes. Now we've talked about it. We've added a little bit of maths to Don't Llama Dice. Yes. Because you have to tell Reiner, the full story. Reiner Knizia can't math, so we decided <laughs> to ask. Yeah, he doesn't know anything about numbers. Add some maths. We decided that. We figured out that you can, in fact, get to 100 points. It started out as an idle question. Is it possible to crack 100? And we thought about it for a while, and we realized it would be very, very difficult. Almost impossible, I believe I posited, but doable. And we further, we further, or at least I further posited, that it would require being dealt a large number of llamas at the outset, and then busting, because llamas are each worth 10 points. So, for those who don't know... Uh... It's whoever has the most points is going to be the loser. Once you hit 40, you're out of the game at the end of that round. Well, the game ends at that the point, The game yes. ends, yep. And uh, so we had uh, a player that busted who, twice. Who was this This reckless, unfortunate well, I wanna, soul? I don't want to point fingers, Mark. I certainly wouldn't want to name that individual for fear of shaming his mother, Mrs. Bigney. And then with this double bust, he was lucky enough to hit a score of just over 80 points. So close. Unprecedented 83 points. Yeah. Here, okay. In my defense, I, I think I'm going to defend every role I took 
that caused busts at least because at that point I was already losing and I had to do something. <laughs> it was, yep. I did. I had to shoot for the moon. I'm not going to defend all my plays, but the plays that led to two busts were both busts were exceptionally situational. I, I it was a very surgical role to bust. And I had very few llamas, but it turns out you can rack up a lot of points even without those llamas. So there you have it. I, I do want to comment on one thing. I've been thinking more and more about Don't Llama Dice. It really is a, a splendid filler. We've been using it to cap off games days or start off games days for quite some time now. The title originally, when it was a German card game, made sense. It was a pun about a German expression to, to, to get rid of points that made an acronym that spelled llama. Okay, great. Fine. No problem. And then you translate it to English. First of all, the acronym doesn't make sense anymore, and there's an extra L. Okay, whatever. So you have to make some fudges. But now, in Llama Dice, we have Don't Llama Dice. I don't get it. Well, what, where does the don't come from? Well, that's what it's. you shouldn't have rolled. Don't Llama Dice, Mark. But that, I shouldn't, no. have, shouldn't have played? or just You shouldn't have rolled. I shouldn't have rolled. <sighs> See, it tells you right on the box. You should have read the box. But Llama Dice is not the action of throwing dice. I'm con- I I don't I don't understand it. I'm not going to say that this is as strange a process of title permutation as say certain movie franchises that may or may not be starring certain patron saints of this podcast, but I I I I think they've lost the plot a little bit. Anyway, that's that's my comment on Don't Mama Dice. And I'm going to make it to 100 Sunday Walker. I'm going to get there. Now that I before I thought it was almost impossible now having hit 83, I'm going to get those last 17 points. Dream big. Dream big. <laughs> Reach for the stars. I got to play Lacuna. This is a review copy sent to us by the publisher CMYK, designed by Mark Garretts. And this is a two-player positional abstract. Normally, this is not my style of game, but Lacuna is weapons-grade charming. What you do is you spread out a lovely black mat, and then you take the container of the game, which is the cylinder, it has a special attachment, to then let you shake out the wooden pieces over the mat, and there are these beautiful wooden flowers of different colors. And then all you do over the course of the game is you place your metal tokens, these thick, satisfyingly heavy metal tokens, between two unobstructed flowers, and then you just take both those flowers. And then at the end of the game, all flowers remaining on the board go to whichever player has a piece closest to it. That is it. That is the entirety of the game. And the goal of the game is to score a majority of four out of the seven flowers. I have literally given you the entire rules explanation. I was shocked by its simplicity. I was shocked by its approachability. Its table appeal is undeniable. It is extraordinarily pleasing. Lacuna is a lovely little approachable experience. I don't know how much it would appeal to the hardcore positional abstract among us. Like, if you're knee-deep in the GIF GIF games, if you Devon all day, if Tamsk is uh, your tramp stamp, then I don't know if Lacuna is necessarily going to float your boat. But Lacuna completely pleased me utterly. It is so quick to set up and explain and so delightful to just manipulate all the all the pieces from the chunky metal tokens to the lovely differently cut flowers. It's utterly and completely delightful. And I highly recommend it. I was not expecting to enjoy it nearly as much as I did, but I have to say that CMYK has been on a tear recently. Uh, other than... Um, sorry. Normally, their bag is slightly more party-ish games, but between this and Spots, they've really been doing an excellent job of solidly in the hobbyist space, but incredibly approachable rule sets and delightful physical components. 
And so I am very eager to show Lacuna to more people. I've played it a couple times since getting it to the table first. I'd be happy to show it to you, Walker. I think you might enjoy it. This is Lacuna by Mark Garretts at CMYK. Another review copy that we got was a game called Picky Eaters. This is a uh, set collection card game designed by Tanya Basso and Avi Selton, put out by LeFou Games, who put out other great games like Picky Eaters. <laughs> So, in Picky Eaters, you're having a little dinner party, and people are showing up, they show up one at a time, and by the end of the game, five will show up. So you're going to play the game for five rounds, at the beginning of every round, we're going to get a new guest, we're going to do some card manipulation to fulfill some recipes to feed these guests. Can I make a minor observation about the event that we're hosting? You sure can. To my mind, this is a nightmare event. Because you're preparing composed dishes for these individuals. We're not talking about party food or hors d'oeuvre. You're talking about composed dishes like spaghetti bolognese or moussaka or shakshuka or what have you. And they're showing up at random intervals with no warning and apparently uninvited. This is not my idea of a good time. I was going to say that's that's a dinner party. Really? Yeah. I've never, I, I guess I've never hosted a dinner party of that nature then. Yeah, people, the first person, they always show up early. Uh-huh. You know, they're not really wanting, you're not even ready for them. Yeah. And they say, oh, I'm here to help. But they don't, <laughs> right? They're just getting away. Sure. And, you know, and then everyone else fit, filters in, but okay. all at different times. And okay. And that one person that takes forever, you're waiting for them, and yeah. Are any of them strangers? When you host a dinner party, does someone show up and, and everyone's like, I thought you invited them? No, I thought no, you did. No, this is my new boyfriend. Oh, or girlfriend, right? And oh, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. You never fair know. enough. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my plus one. Yeah. You didn't have a plus one. Just so. Got it. So, and then on these guest cards, they're going to tell you what kind of foods they like. They either really like or sort of like or really hate certain foods. And these are long lists. Typically, I have like eight or nine dishes on a single card. And so you're either A, putting out dishes in hopes to, in, like to when you're looking at a card, say, oh, they want that, and you just happen to have that recipe in your hand, or you're just sort of putting out a bunch of recipes and hoping for the best and trying to manipulate them near the end. Your hand size is 10, and given that you draw five cards at the start of every round, and as an action, we'll probably have the opportunity to pick up one or two more cards trivially, you'll be spending a lot of time discarding on spec. And when you can play a recipe, you're often playing it on spec. Because, yeah, in the first two rounds of the game, say you've got a couple guests that are face-up, and you have a, you can have an idea that there's roughly four to eight recipes that those guests really like. It's a big, fat deck with many, 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 many recipes in it. And so the odds of you being able to pull any one of those individual things is, A, not great, and B, entirely subject to randomness anyway. And so I spend most of the time just deciding what to chuck from my hand with no information on which to go. On top of that, the scoring conditions during play, scoring at the end of the game is actually relatively simple, but in order to have a good sense about whether I should play dish A or dish B, I'm going to have to do the full scoring conditions in my head near the end of the game. And although it's not particularly onerous at the end of the game, it's not something I want to do to inform every given card play, because it is checking a list of eight different recipes across five different cards and then trying to determine plus four here, minus two here, plus one here, plus two there. Not not there. Wait, is this... Is, 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 does this one like doll? No, that one left. Okay, fine. And honestly, the mental effort is not worth it. 
And so what few decision points you have are overwhelmed with this weird spreadsheet accounting. It's a perverse and bizarre combination that I, I for one, do not enjoy. And then on top of that, there's some take that cards. Yes. So you could have some dishes that perfectly match a person and you're, and you think you're doing well. And then someone will play an action card and that person is sent home. Yes. And, and that person is gone now and you get a new person. And any that, calculation or decisions you made on that basis are out the window. And hates all the dishes that you happen to have. Yes. Like we had Hugh. We all hate Hugh. Uh, Hugh look, Hugh, I think it's a bad rap. Hugh so, is no Abe. So, oh, sorry. It was Abe. Sorry. Yeah. Abe. We all hate Abe. Abe is terrible. And, uh, Someone, you know, he was sort of picky on one of the dishes someone had. So we, he was just going to ditch Abe. Yes. And so off goes Abe and out comes the new person, which was a mistake on his part because this new person hated two of their dishes. Yes. And just euchred. The, and this was like at number five at the end of the game. And yes. that just put him right out. Abe hates pizza and joy. And I will say this, though. This is the one saving grace of picky eaters. It's got lots of personality. Yep. The people that you're nominally feeding at this perverse dinner party from hell are rendered in a very, very charming art style. And you d you don't really get a sense of who they are. Like, it's a random assortment of things. Like, the the, the quote-unquote, the, the closest there was to any sort of theme was the quote-unquote Francophile who liked a couple of French dishes and hated mac and cheese. Well, and then there was the child that loved, you know, like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and, and mac and cheese. And hated hamburgers. And hated hamburgers. <laughs> Which, anyway... But nonetheless, the way they're rendered is very compelling. And it is nice to look at all these dishes. And yeah, the, the actual recipe is kind of kind of weird. Like dumplings apparently are made out of noodles and meat, which is news to me. But it's nonetheless fun to talk about these dishes and, and think about these different foods and things. Yeah, it's got personality. I just wish that I w didn't feel pulled in these two directions, neither of which I really like. One of them being a highly calculational scoring system and the other being an incredibly arbitrary card play system. The only, the only thing worse than those two things is both of them together, as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. But if you have a group that enjoys food and enjoys take that and complete randomness, this, <laughs> this could be a game for them. It is on Kickstarter right now, so check it out. It is called Picky Eaters, if not only to see this very charming art style. But stay away from Abe. Who invited Abe? I didn't invite him. No one invited Abe. Uh, yeah, he just shows up. Abe. Abe. Just a brief Spirit Island update. There was a question on the Discord about whether Nature Incarnate has reached the shores of Swag, and it has. We've been playing a lot of Nature Incarnate, with uh, trying out the new spirits, uh, eagerly devouring all the new mechanisms and spirits involved. I have played Nature Incarnate four times. There is a sizzler in the can with Nature Incarnate content that will be published sometime this week. And rest assured that the stellar track record of the entire Spirit Island product line remains unblemished. So more more to follow on that. As as always, Sizzler exists, so I don't spend five to ten minutes every week talking about how I love Spirit Island and played it again. But once again, in the interest of full disclosure, Spirit Island was designed by R. Eric Royce, who is a personal friend of mine. And Greater Than Games has been fulfilling Nature Incarnate, and I feel very, very sorry for the Europeans, who apparently have to wait another three months to get their nature incarnate, you have my sincere condolences. Yikes. Yeah. Mark and I got to play a game called Time Barons. This is designed by John Perry and Derek Yu and put out by The Game Crafter. This is a fantastic, well, it says four players. This is a fantastic two-player game. Oh, I shouldn't say that because we haven't played multiple players. You never know. 
might be something clever there, but it is a great two-player game. Uh, it has two different decks that you get to choose from. Very simple. You're, you're going to do three actions, and and a lot of the cards take multiple actions to play out. And a lot of the cards that you've already played out have some free actions. And it's all about manipulating your population across these cards, because certain cards need a number of population in order for them to activate and trying to keep your population up because your opponent is constantly hurting your poor people that have families <laughs> and siblings and there are funerals and tears. And Mark, I, I hope you are ashamed of yourself. That's a lie, Walker. You do not offer any funeral coverage for your followers. Your official policy is you offer the family members a cardboard box and use of a shovel for an hour. I think that's kind enough. <laughs> so... Time Barons is a review copy we got from the designer John Perry, and John Perry is the king of small box games. I've described described Time Barons in the past as a uh, less complicated, in combat-focused innovation. There are four different ages of decks. You have more control about when you tech up than you do an innovation, and that's one of the key things that I find so fascinating about Time Barons. The action efficiency is really compelling, because yes... Not only do does it cost actions to draw cards and to play cards and to activate other things, but you have to decide when it is time to take the action hit and move up to the next deck. Sometimes you're forced, sometimes you do it early, and sometimes it's a desperate mistake. And we played a couple of games back-to-back, -back, and the second one in particular went back and forth into the mattresses. It was wild. Coming back from the brink of destruction all the way to complete domination, it was really, really interesting in terms of the overall arc of the game, which you don't often find in quick two-player card games, but again, is not unheard of in games such as Innovation. So when I And make no mistake, when I compare Time Barons to Innovation, I mean that in the highest possible, uh, highest possible praise. So I'm a... Big, big fan of Time Barons. I would even try it with the multiplayer variants. I mean, I'm somewhat dubious, like you are, but nonetheless, I have enough faith in John Perry, even though this was his uh, first published card game. There have been rumblings from various sources, Walker, that this design is being reworked and retooled. And uh, were it to be republished, I cannot wait to see the final result, because John Perry is on a tear. He published Spots with CMYK. I re referred to that when discussing Lacuna. And he's responsible for the Airland and Sea series, which is now in two different versions, with animals, without animals, and <laughs> two different theaters, espionage and non-espionage. So I am very, very eager for more Time Barons. We have yet to scratch the surface of the decks. We, we haven't even really gotten to Era 4 much yet. And uh, based on how wild Era 3 gets, I can only imagine how wild Era 4 gets. And as you say, there are two decks, which is wonderful. Time Barons is an utter delight. I find it thoroughly, thoroughly pleasing. Agreed. Played Kemet Blood and Sand. This is the updated version of Kemet, published by Matago in 2021, designed by Jacques Barriot and Guillaume Montillage. And the original Kemet is one of our favorite Troops on a Map games. It really serves to avoid a lot of the traditional problems of Troops on a Map. We've talked about this a bunch of times. And I do not have as much experience with the updated version Blood and Sand as I would like. Overall, after having played it about three or four times, my, my impressions are that graphically it's a lateral movement. The board is very sort of harsh and CGI looking with awkward shadows and, and weird perspective tricks and when you're playing with three players, and Kemet is great with three players, you end up forsaking about half the board in a very, very graphically awkward-looking way. 
And I wish the board had been double-sided uh, because, yes, it, it it's balanced and it shakes out, but I think it would have been a lot more visually pleasing if you would use up more of the board real estate, and you could have done that by just putting graphics on the other side of the board. And overall, I, I like the victory conditions better. You don't have the, the weird elements of turn order in quite the same way that you did in the base game. Timing of Divine Intervention cards has been cleared up. And overall, the universe of effects is a, is a lot more focused. But by the same token, the visual appeal has gone down. And to a certain extent, the options in Tassati have been pared down. Now, sometimes that's good. The additional elements of the overall city of Tassati are gone which was occasionally a distraction, uh, but you still have the extra set of power tiles, which have now also been fixed in translation, so you don't have the awkwardness of white power tiles and black power tiles. So they are diamond and onyx and ruby and sapphire and such. At any rate, I am glad to have Commit Blood and Sin. As I say, it's a much more focused package and all-in experience. I just wish that the graphics and some of the components weren't as awkward-looking in comparison to the charm of the original. I've actually divested myself of the original expansions by giving them away to listeners. The base game is still available for listeners, parenthetically. But Blood and Sand is a good product to have. I just wish that they had not missed so many opportunities in republishing it. All of that said, it is still a this, fundamentally the same wonderful Troops on a Map game that, that it's been for all these years. I just wish its sister game, Yucatan, was playable. Oh, it's playable. We played it. We could play it again. Did we it know? is playable. <laughs> That's Commit Blood and Sand by Jacques Barriot and Guillaume Montillage. We also played Shards of Infinity by Gary Arnett and Justin Gary, published by Stoneblade Entertainment and Ultra Pro. And this is a great deck building type game with the kickstarter being up right now we thought we'd give it another try so we would talk about it and it's just a great game you have cards that you can play and expel immediately you just get their benefit and they go right in the discard pile so they don't bloat your deck you have different colors that that key off of each other you have leaders you have a build-up of this giant weapon everything i enjoy about charge infinity we played it uh i don't want to say a different way but being three players it usually has this ABC problem where, you know, you're going to gang up on somebody or or one way or the other. So we played that uh, doing damage does damage to everyone. Yes, it's one of the optional three-player rules in the first expansion, and I prefer it. It makes the game possibly too quick, but I vastly, I, I would take that over some of the arbitrariness of your traditional free-for-all anyway. With four players, the way to do it is with teams. Two players is fine. Three players, you kind of have to pick your poison. What was your impression of the this this variant? Uh, I thought it was a little bit too quick. Fair because it, it was two turns of damage before you even got a turn type thing. So you had two people attacking you before, you know what I mean, between your turns. Sure. But, but everyone is subject to the same pressure, at it's least. It's true. And you don't have to worry about bizarre situations where every time you do damage, you say, how much life do you have left? How much life do you have left? Okay, well, I'll do seven to you and I'll do four to you. Okay. So, not that it's that cumbersome, honestly. Yeah, one of the reasons why we were playing Shards of Infinity was because this is one of Chip the Third's favorite games, and it seemed like an excellent way to, to round it out. A lot of really interesting card effects uh, are kind of beyond the scope of a game of Shards of Infinity, but nonetheless, the cards all look cool and let you feel powerful and let you feel like you're doing fun stuff. You're not going to be spending a whole lot of turns paying three for a silver the way you will be in a lot of other deck building games. And ultimately, 
Uh, the only real problem I have with Shards of Infinity, as it currently exists with the range of expansions that we have, because we played the co-op, we've played the campaign version, we've played the different expansions. I really like Relics of the Future. I think that really uh, adds a level of asymmetry and interest. But there is one card <laughs> that I think I'm going to bin. It costs $1 to purchase, and when you play it, everyone reveals the top card of your deck, and you get to copy almost any card that gets revealed that way. It's bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Bananas. I, 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 I seldom, in games like this, Walker, look at a card or a power and say, What? <laughs> really? <laughs> but every time this, this comes up, whoever has a chance to buy it, looks at it in the market, reads it, and says, For $1? Yeah. I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar because you have unlimited buys. Yep. So if it's a one dollar card, it had better it had better be bad. <laughs> and du the, the the duplication generator mm, too good. So I think I'm gonna bin it next time it comes up. To be frank, big fan of Shards Infinity. It's my favorite of the realms types games. I have commented on Pledge of Indifference that I'm not going to be pledging for the new edition on Kickstarter. This is just strictly a wait-to-retail kind of thing and wait to see how much the cards have changed because there's no upgrade path for existing owners and sometimes that's legit and sometimes that's nonsense. I'm not in a position to judge at this moment, but I can tell you one thing. I certainly don't need any neoprene playmats or any sleeves, so... Agreed. Easy pass. That is Shards of Infinity with many and sundry expansions. I got to introduce Walker to one of my old favorites. This is Merchant of Venus by Richard Hamblin, originally published by Avalon Hill in 1988. There was a Fantasy Flight reprint almost 10 years ago now. I do not like the reprint for two reasons. Number one, the artwork is not to my taste. And number two, you cannot play the way I like to play in the new Fantasy Flight version. So... This is one of those instances I, I talked about, again, in the, the, the bloat that we previewed in the special Patreon sampler platter that we published last week, that there's this realm of dicta, stuff outside the rules that the designer or the publisher or the developer might comment on. And in an issue of The General, which was Avalon Hill's in-house magazine, the designer, Richard Hamblin, who was very, very much almost kind of like the devious weasel of his day, sort of an iconoclastic mad genius commented that his preferred way to play was the so-called fast setup variant, where everything gets mixed up into a big bag and you pull things out rather than having to laboriously separate out individual chits and the economy is more or less fixed at the start of the game. Rather, in this case, the economy evolves more over a course of a single session because Merchants of Venus is a pick-up-and-deliver game. It is my favorite pick-up-and-deliver game. You are setting out and trying to reestablish contact with alien races after a great uh, collapse of the Empire has led to trade routes falling fallow. You're not even sure where the races are anymore. You're headed out in the unknown. Again, in, in, in his designer's notes, Richard Hamlin said he wanted to design a game about the spice trade when Europeans would set out and literally have no conception about what they were going to run into. And he felt that he the only way to replicate that was through a science fiction scenario because you cannot capture that sense of the unknown in a historical map. It's got a lot of personality in the different races, a lot of personality in the different goods. You can buy new ships, you can buy tech, you can run across artifacts. And it definitely, definitely has no outdated mechanisms whatsoever. So, <laughs> in reviewing games, you sometimes use oh boy. words. Oh, boy. Like, dated, like you said. <laughs> or, this game really shows its age. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> this would be the poster child of those phrases. Oh, come on. Now, there is a, a mechanism called roll to move that has been phased out. It has been phased out for reasons. Why? Because it's painful. Why? Because you can be punished over and over again, and it slows the game down, and it feels like some people will get better rolls than you. And not only on, on top everything, of that... Everything you've said, take the best combat-determined dice game, the same thing can be said. I would argue that the volatile... roll more dice. Not only that... More dice? In, you roll three dice a turn in Merchant of Venus. In, in other games... That Every have, turn you're rolling three dice, usually, in a, in other or more. Game, in other games where you have roll to move, they always give you benefits or ways to modify it. In this game, all they do is throw more penalties at you. There's asteroids that get in the way that make you pay money. There is... Yeah, it's a shame there's no Mulligan Drive or Switch clouds. Switch or, there are clouds or, or where drives you, you could purchase where or you, shields to mitigate the... Where yeah, you shame. even have to roll particular dice to go the way you want to go. It is overly painful. On top of that... The uh, races are all randomly distributed. The, uh, the 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 goods that you need to buy are come out randomly all the time. So there's no way to, you know, you have no idea where the goods are going to show up. You do, you get to see the, the, the different races before they're even found. You get to see what they're going to come out with. So you can sort of plan on that, but you have no idea where they are. And so you've, you've maybe set out on a certain direction. And other people set out in different directions and they might be able to find a good combo out in their area of space where they can go back and forth and start selling goods. You might have gone out to another whole area where the combos don't quite work out the way you wanted to. All in all, I did enjoy playing the game. It has this interesting, very interesting theme. It's very flushed out, has very interesting uh, races and, and funny bits about, you know, what why each race has developed the way they have. But it is, it feels very dated. So but it was still a good time. Purely for the sake of dealing with narrow minded curmudgeons, I, I don't know who I might be talking about, I would be open to trying some of the fan variants about mitigating the roll to move aspect. But I would argue the sheer volume of dice makes it so that it's not really a tremendous determinant of success. And it certainly doesn't bog the game down much because you decide where you want to go, you pitch the dice. If you don't make it, Play moves on. And those turns are incredibly straightforward and quick, and you can buy better ships, and you can buy better drives, and this, that, and the other. And if you compare it to, I don't know, even a game like Claustrophobia, where you're pitching a smaller number of dice trying to hit things, if you consistently miss, you're just as bad a position as you consistently roll a move slowly in Merchant Venus. But the thing is, is that I, I understand why roll to move is as hated as it is in a contemporary game market. But I, I think that when you compare it to a lot of other games where you get fistfuls of dice to try to kill something, you might actually be exaggerating the extent of the the, the influence of luck. Well, in combat, of you have a chance to miss. You have your yeah. opponent that's trying to dodge. And moving, you are moving. Oh, I am oh walking, so it's a thematic objection. I am walking down the street. I am not, you know, it takes a certain amount of time. It's, no, seriously, not, it's is, not a variable amount of is time. Is this a mechanical like, objection or a thematic objection? How, when are you going to no, get seriously. here? Well, it only takes me 10 minutes to get there, but who knows? Let's just give it an hour. This because from a man who's frequently late. It could randomly... Is I this could, a mechanical I'll objection? Show up. Is this a mechanical objection or a thematic objection? Mostly mechanical. It's mostly mechanical? So then we can excise the, the past 30 seconds of my life of you kvetching about how it doesn't make any thematic sense? Because suddenly you're an expert on faster than light travel in the world of Merchant of Venus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Special note, never knock one of Mark's favorite games. I enjoyed it a great deal. And I think that Richard Hamlin is a fascinating designer. And I feel like playing Merchant of Venus once roughly every five years. I just think that specific objections can be overblown. It's true. Yeah, that's what, that's why all the new games have rule to move. Yeah, because if it's newer, it's better. I didn't say that. That's, I said all the just, all the games that have come out recently no, that's have, have rolled to move. Just what you said. That's exactly what you said. <laughs> that is Merchant of Venus, designed by Richard Hamblin, originally published by Avalon Hill in 1988. Isn't that the same year like Rocky Rocky Stick Stick came out? I think so. Rocky Rocky Stick Stick. <laughs> <laughs> I realize your memory is going because you were born in the same year that that Sinet was originally published. But those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it does not matter. From the publishers of Rush MD, Kitchen Rush, and the original Project Elite comes Firefighters on Duty. This is going to be designed by Castonios Cornelius and Sterlios Are you Tenalis. talking about Constantinos Kikinis? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and it's coming out by Artipia Games, like I said, and it's going to be... Uh, Real-time, co-op, rolling the dice, much like Project Elite. There's not much on it right now, but I'm, I'm told out. that I'm told that rolling dice is bad. On the topic of roll to move, how do you move in Project Elite? Don't you have to roll a die to, to, to get this, a certain value in order to move? Because I'm of the opinion that when it comes to movement, it should be a deterministic, constant thing. <laughs> so is this actually going to be using like the Rush MD Kitchen Rush system? Uh, that I'm not sure. There's very little on it right now. It just says okay. it's a dice rolling, cooperative, real-time game about firefighting. Fair enough, because they've designed Rush MD and Kitchen Rush, which my understanding is there, that there's some connective threads, as well as Project Elite, which is a radically different game, although still cooperative, real-time dice rolling. And parenthetically, that reminds me yet again that I have not yet played Rush MD, and I'm very curious about it. Oh, well, Warm Boy, ha Warm Boy has it. We will bust it out. Yeah, because my impression was that it was generally well-liked. I really liked it. Yeah, yeah. That was my recollection. I haven't tried it. I would like to try Rush MD. So, I don't get to play it much anymore, but Infinity is still my favorite tabletop miniatures rule set, and it is going to be having an expansion called Infinity End Song. New rules, new factions, new sub-factions, that is to say, and new troop profiles. Now, the good news is that if you're just interested in the rules, and if you're interested in the new troop profiles, they will all, all be available for free, because that's how Infinity rolls. And you can try them out in the Army Builder, which is excellent, feature-rich, Complete allows for saving, exporting, printing, and it's also free. So that's great. The only reason to buy the book is if you want it to have it in hardbound form, you want the fluff, you want some of the lovely art, etc. And I'm a big fan of the Infinity Universe. It is a great vision of a near-future cosmopolitanism, as opposed to other tabletop miniature systems that tend to be lily-white and overwhelmingly male, mentioning no workshops that make games in particular. So I'm looking forward to Infinity Endsong. There's already a new tag called the Squallow Mark II that is available for one of my favorite factions that looks very, very appealing. Read cheap. <laughs> I love cheap units that, that look effective. It looks like it might be that sweet spot. It's under 60 points. It's got six armor and three wounds. Mm, juicy. Juicy. So that's Infinity Endsong by Corvus Belly. So Dorf Romantic has done very well, won some awards. It is going to be The SDJ. SDJ, in fact, it's going to come out with a competitive version. Yeah. Interesting. So you, it starts with this sort of very, very low-key, very chill PC game. Then it's a co-op, family-style tile layer, which we enjoyed. Yes, very much. 
And then, parenthetically, in Ouroboros eating its own tail, the board game is going to get a digital adaptation. And then, presumably, there might be a board game adaptation of that digital ad- adaptation of the board game. And this is going to continue ad infinitum. Mark, when you pull the lever yeah. and money comes out, yeah. you keep pulling the lever. Oh, is that why I'm not successful? Maybe. Ooh. Thank you. And now we have a competitive version. That strikes me as a radical tonal shift. Now, I've been a big fan of the works of Michael Palm and Lucas Zack for a while. Uh, Die Kutschwarz zur Teufelsberg was one of my favorite big teen games for many years, and it was very, very popular in my group when wherever I was able to introduce it. And I'm very, very glad that they're getting success with Dorf Romantic, but uh, this, is, this is a change. Well, Carcassonne had a co-op version, so I guess... Carca- it's weird because Carcassonne was around for a very long time before it got its co-op version, like 15 years of Carcassonne and a lot of Carcassonne before they finally got to the co-op wall. Dorf Romantic apparently had a single board game thing and they're like, all right, time to go time to go competitive. Well, this isn't a criticism. It's just no. a strange development. Well, you got to keep it fresh in people's minds now that they know about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the time is ripe. After yeah. you win the SDJ, you got to keep that momentum going. That's yes. right. So, match of the century, Spassky versus Fisher. So, the 1972 chess championship match between Spassky and Fisher is now being immortalized in a board game by Paolo Mori. We are big fans of Paolo Mori designs here at So Very Wrong About Games. And match of the century is going to be a two-player game that is not chess and is not about chess. So, like, there are a whole bunch of jokes when the Queen's Gambit board game got released. It's like, uh, well, it's, um, why don't you just see there's this game, you see. The show was already about a game. Was, not enough playtesting. It's, you know what we should call that process? We should call that process the full dwarf. When there's an adaptation <laughs> and it's already it's already changing, or a weird adaptation that, that that's Ouroboros eating its own, cha- own tail. So, even though the, the Queen's Gambit predated Dwarf Romantic, the adaptation... Uh, the Queen's Gambit was definitely a full dwarf, and people were confused. Here, though, Match of the Century is not really going to be about chess or chess problems or chess puzzles. That's very much the subtext. The actual action is going to be more about mental endurance and your reserves over the court, because these were grueling tests of endurance and psychological concentration, because in the 1970s, as you can imagine, an international chess co- uh, championship between the Soviet Union and the United States wasn't just about chess, as you might be able to imagine. I'm not going to. I'm not suggesting in any way that Match of the Century is going to be some sort of spy thriller, but it's going to be representing more of the mental aspects of the game. Uh, it sounds bizarre in terms of adapting the source material, but I'm sufficiently curious by virtue of the fact that Paolo Mori is attached. That is Match of the Century, Spassky versus Fisher. I'm also vaguely curious about the source material for what it's worth. I'm not really a chess fan, but uh, a, a good friend of mine was a big into chess and he would tell me about these larger than life personalities and they're fascinating people. Yeah. I just saw some like photographs from history it's called. And it was a, a full garden chess board with, you know, people on horses and in oh, full sure, armor. sure. And, and these two very big chess people at the time were phoning in their moves. So, <laughs> and of course, probably just doing the moves on a normal chess board at home, not seeing the spectacle that was happening, but there was like stadium, seats and everything else was oh, wow. so all these people were watching this chess game take place while they were yeah 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 yeah. Moves. yeah mark i got a game that i think you and i will love it is called turbo kids so what i'm going to do it's sort of, sort of like looney looney quest so i was called with the marker yes. so it's like looney quest so i'm going to show you a picture of the racetrack uh-huh then 
you're going to close your eyes. Okay. And now you're going to start drawing. Oh no. You're going to start racing on this racetrack. <laughs> but you're going to do it and you're going to do it with a Fonzie thumbs up. And you're going to have a co-pilot. He's going to sort of help keep you on the track as you're That is amazing. Around. I know. <laughs> it's going to be amazing because it's going to be timed, right? So so you so might So this think, is blind dungeon scrawlers with a co-pilot. That's right. Exactly so. And you think, well, his, they're just going to slowly move you around the track. But no, because it's timed. So you're going to be trying to <laughs> to go as fast as you can. And they're just going to be like nudging you, like just trying to keep you on the track. Without, it's going to be amazing. I can't that wait. is awesome. Yeah. Turbo Kids, designed by Emmanuel Garvin and put out by Le Scorpion Masque. Le Scorpion Masque! Can't wait. Big fans of Le Scorpion Masque. We have a new Reiner Knizia game coming out. It's called Sunrise Lane. This is going to be coming out by Horrible Guild, even. Mm. All sorts of interesting uh, models for houses and, and stuff. Reiner Knizia, I've heard, does good games. So I'm looking forward to trying it out. You know, I like that guild. I think they should believe in themselves. I know. They're not as horrible as they think. (laughs) That's damning with faint praise if I ever heard it. (laughs) Mark, you and I love DM-less role-playing games. There is a super cute one coming to crowdfunding very soon called Bramble Trek. You just need to check it out for the art. Check it out if you've never played a DM-less role-playing game. I am definitely going to be looking into it. Bramble Tech. Games Workshop is finally getting back to making some games. I think they're finally understanding that you need to bring in new blood and how they brought in new blood before is putting out great games like Space Hulk and uh, Advanced Space Crusade. These games that go out to the mass market that people see the models and they look more into it. And so therefore they get hooked on to the 40k sort of bandwagon. So this one is keyed off of one of their big PC games, Space Marine. Space Marine 2 apparently is just coming out. I have no idea. This is going to be Space Marine, the board game. This one is going to be available at Target. And oh. it's it's pretty well one figure against a bunch of small gene stealer type models, all pushed together models, all ready to go. Looks like it might be interesting. The other one is called, uh, this was is that Barnes & Noble is going to be available there. It's called Combat Arena. And this one looks very interesting, too. There was, I think it was one of their Dawn of Wars. They had also had, a, like, a sort of a combat uh, arena-type mode where you'd bring in your leader. So this one, they have 10 diverse different characters that you can play, like main leaders of all the different 40K races. And there's going to be a Amber Hulk in the center. So either attack An, the, a- an Amber Hulk? Or a Umber, Umber Hulk. It was Umber called. Hulk. Umber Hulk. Okay. It was, it was a great, it was like back from Rogue Trader. They used to have Umber Hulks at the same time they had Zotes. Um, um, Excuse me, what is a zote? zote I feel like the judge and my cousin Vinny. What is a a zote? It's like a centaur thing with a giant melta-type gun. I'm going to have to stop asking questions because every time you answer a question, I have more questions. Although Umberhulks exist in D&D. Are they the same in D&D as they are in Games Workshop? Like insect-type pincers. Yeah, they burrow and they have uh, uh, weird mandibles and they're giant things. Okay, okay. And so you either attack the Umber Hulk or you attack the other players. It might be interesting. And last, I, I put this here because maybe people play a, an app called Grand Blue Fantasy. Have you ever even heard of this? I have heard of this, yes. Okay, so there's a big app that is popular in lots of places called Grand Blue Fantasy. There's going to it's be one of those games, I think, that, that sucks up all your time. Gotcha. And money. Well, there's going to be a board game based on it. Same sort of thing, skirmishy type game. This is going to be put out by Japanime Tactics. So if you're interested in that app, 
interested in playing it in a board game fashion, then it's best to take a look at it. I'll play anything skirmishy. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to take a quick break to pay some bills. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. And now, back to the show. And now, for our main review of this episode, which is Expeditions by Jaggy... Jaggy? Jaggy Stegmeyer? He, he gets Jaggy with it. Jamie Stegmeyer and Stonemeyer Games. Jamie Stegmeyer is the publisher of Stonemeyer Games. He's also the de- designer of many a Stonemeyer game, including Euphoria and... Charterstone and Scythe. Scythe is credited as being sort of the first game in the 1920 plus universe, which was credited to Jakub Rosalski, who was the artist of both Scythe and Expeditions. And lately, Stonemeyer has been publishing fewer and fewer of Jimmy Stegmeyer's designs in favor of other designers, most notably, of course, Wingspan by Elizabeth Hargrave, which took the gaming world by storm. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Expeditions? So, in Expeditions, much like Scythe, you know what your goals are. You need to find the best path between your special ability, the cards that are available, the order in which the tiles become available in order to achieve victory. Or you can pick up a quest card and stubbornly spend the rest (laughs) of the game searching for that tile and never finding it. You had the worst luck. It was amazing. <laughs> Several games in a row trying to figure... <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So Expeditions is a tableau builder. And there are three kinds of cards. We'll talk a little bit about the difference between three kinds of cards. The important thing to internalize about the three kinds of cards is thus. In the five-card display, the kind of card you want isn't there. Don't bother looking. Don't bother looking again. You're going to keep looking, hoping it's there again. You figure, there's five cards there. There's three kinds of cards. On average, it's going to be one card. No, no, it's not there. It's yeah. not there. Yeah, three people. It's all meteors. Three people. Don't took... find. Don't look for any items. They're all meteors. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Now you need meteors. They're all items now. Yep. Three people took their turn. They all took cards. One people even swept. Yeah. I'm not even going to look there. Yeah, don't bother. I, I, there's obviously a meteor. Yeah. And you picked up a quest. You picked up quest number 12, you know, 12 rounds ago. Hoping that the tile would be revealed. It, it's not revealed. It's not there. No. You don't know where it is. Yeah. Someone left it in the box. <laughs> anyway, these, these are minor gripes. But nonetheless, eh, well, actually, the extent to which they're minor gripes, I'm not sure. The, the quest thing, whatever. You take that, yeah. you know you're taking a risk. But, okay. So, the key flow of cards in your tableau, from your hand to your active area, the recycle element, getting workers to power your cards the currency that your cards generate, the special abilities that they trigger, how to boost them, things like that. That part is, I think, in Expeditions, quite interesting and very compelling. 
And it's one of those classic kind of tableau builder solo puzzles that is an interesting efficiency puzzle to figure out. Yeah, so there's four ways to build your tableau. Like Mark said, there are workers, there are meteor cards, there are upgrade cards, and then there are your active cards. And it's best to, like Scythe, you're going to be putting out stars when you uh, achieve certain goals. And it's best to get a few started because these cards that you activate usually get you better resources if you have some goals already achieved. Yes. And most cards, it's worth noting, benefit you the more you've already triggered other things. So there's the fact that there's a core value to every card. It just generates some of two different currencies. Many of them, especially your starting ones, give you more if you've already achieved a couple of your stars. Then there are meteors. Meteor cards, when you play them, tend to work better if you've already achieved a couple of meteors. It's called meld. I don't know why. I'm going to be griping about the terminology in a second. And those two have thresholds based on how many meteors you've already socked. And so there's a certain reward for specialization, but the horizon for that specialization is is deliberately kept low. Eventually, you're not going to be able to take any more items or you're not going to be able to take any more meteors because... Number one, you've already achieved the star. There's no more victory points to be had, or at least not many. And number two, there's just a hard cap on how many you can slot in. So you're going to be forced to go off and do something else. After my first play of Expeditions, my primary response was, oh, the card flow is interesting, but I'm worried that the game is going to feel samey because the cards don't have... You may disagree. I don't feel like the cards have a tremendous amount of personality, either visually or mechanically, which quite frankly surprised me, given how much personality I found in the encounter cards in Scythe. But I will say that by virtue of just the subtlest nudge that the game systems give you in terms of the order in which the tiles get revealed and the order in which various cards enter the card market, each subsequent game has felt significantly different in terms of what I go after and when. Yeah, I think it just feel, falls into the same thing I always go on about, is that if you start putting in interesting and powerful cards, there is a chance that they'll always come out for one person, or it'll unbalance the game. Sure. So therefore, you must have a bunch of cards that are very basic and similar. <laughs> I, 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 that's not a grape, though, because... You know, I mean, they're all very interesting, and they're all there are definitely ways that you can get them to combo off of each other. Yes, you can. You can because you're going to have a bunch of workers, and you can either get a bunch of cards that have the same type of workers that you already have, or you can start to diversify, or you can, like you said, get a bunch of quests or meteors, and there's also these upgrade cards as well. Yeah, my. <sighs> Some of the card effects I, I do think are kind of interesting. And the fundamental tension with respect to what to do with your cards, I think has less to do about playing them properly and more about when you're going to get rid of them. So case in point, quests, completing quests are a key avenue to victory for everybody. Regardless of what you want to specialize in, it's kind of like the analog of popularity in Scythe. Doesn't matter what you're doing in Scythe, popularity is going to be consequential for your final score. I'm not saying you have to, spe uh, to focus on it in order to win. But if you ignore it, it's at a considerable opportunity cost. But these quests can't be played anymore once you've completed them. And so there's this tension between, well, how long do I want to keep this card cycling in and out of my effect? In one game, I had a quest that allowed me to recycle other cards. And if I recycled three, three or more other cards, I got three points, which was kind of cool. So I picked it up initially intending just to satisfy it right away because I saw that the quest 
had a location face up visible on the map, I could go do it. But then I pivoted, realizing oh, I, I like having this card around. I think I'm going to play it a few times because it gives me considerable tempo advantages. Not all cards are going to be that interesting in terms of trade-offs, but I agree with you that that there's nothing overwhelming in terms of someone playing a card and the entire table goes, wait, what? Which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. In the context of expeditions, I think it's a good thing. Agreed. So what are the things that make it like Scythe? And I think one of the reasons why Scythe is uh, very popular is the goal system. It gives people a direct path on what they need to do. It is very transparent on what your goals are, and it's the same in Expeditions. You have four stars that you need to get out, which will trigger the end of the game. Unlike Scythe, it doesn't end immediately, but everyone will get another turn. And and I like how they all sort of play off each other. Like you said, you need to know when you want to slot these cards in. There's upgrades, meteors, and quests. But one of the goals is to have eight cards in your active area. And if they're slotted in, they don't count as your active area. Well, across your hand and your active area. Yes. More on that Sorry. Way. Under your control is yes. what I meant to say. In, in con- yes, that you control, yes. Because you don't control them once they've been slotted into your board. Just so. <laughs> okay, maybe I should complain about it now. Yeah. The terminology is reliably awful. <laughs> Sometimes they're kind of okay, but it's reliably bad. Like, you meld meteorites. What does that mean? The icon that is associated with melding meteorites is a housey. Why is it a housey when you're melding meteorites? And when you meld the meteorites, you don't control them anymore. Well, where do you meld them from? Either from your hand or from your active area. Your hand is on the table. I'm sorry. Can we just spread a memo to everyone in the board gaming industry? Because I've seen this a couple times before. Your hand shouldn't be face up on the table. Call it something else. Call it to the left of your board because that's where it is. And then it's not under your control after you meld it. What? What? That, that's nonsense. There are some icons that aren't actually directly spelled out in the rule book. You have to kind of infer. Remember how I said there's there are threshold to, to various meteorites? You kind of got kind of got to guess as to how that works. Ugh, the terminology is bad. I don't like it. They should have fixed it. Yeah, it's like you have a refresh buff and then you have a refresh action. Yes, subtly different. Yes, very subtly different. (laughs) I don't approve. (laughs) So yes, little things like that. A lot of icons that look very similar but do very different things. Yes, is the card standing straight up or is it at a bit of a a 25 degree angle? Well, that's different, you see. I, I would like to circle back, though. Again, that's a relatively minor gripe. Seldom is it the case that you're confused as to how things work. Although, again, some of the iconography can be messed up, but whatever. That, that's common in ta- Tableau Builders. I don't think that Expeditions is particularly difficult in, in, in that aspect. It's pretty easy to learn. But I want to compare Expeditions unfavorably the Scythe in how it deals with goals in two ways. Number one, in Scythe, one of the things that I like about it and many games with you showed how potent this is. You don't have to go for stars. You don't have to go for goals. Based on how the tempo of the game is going, and based on what you happen to be pursuing, you can win the game and have vastly fewer stars than other players around the table. I always go for stars because I'm a very conservative, very focused, sort of focused in a bad way, usually blinkered, kind of short-term bang, 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 list things off like a, a flowchart or a to-do list. You, on the other hand, in many games of side that I've seen, you spread out, you take your time, you figure, well, I could go for start. Nah, I've got better things to do. And at the end of the game, I'm like, I got all my stars out. And you're like, well, I've got twice your score. That's nice for you. Expeditions, in my experience, has not been like that. The consequence of scoring stars, because the score horizons are narrowed, it's a much more focused game than Scythe is in many ways. And so getting out stars is of greater consequence. And number two, 
I think that the way that achievements work in expeditions is one or two steps too far. I commented before that the fundamental efficiency puzzle of managing your card flow is one that I find enjoyable, that the trade-offs about when to refresh, how to use your resources, when to put a card out of your control and effectively score it based on the, the three different kinds of cards there are. But when you achieve a goal, you don't get to put out a star. You then have to go and do an action which is called boast. And like many things in expeditions, there's no fundamental default way to do the boast action. You got to find it on the board. There aren't there aren't there aren't cards that do it for you, although some do indirectly, but not really. You have to wait for certain tiles to be uncovered, and then you have to wait for those tiles to be fully vanquished, and then you can go do it with a gather action. Not only is it situational, and not only is it another hoop you have to go through, it's not particularly fun. It's the capper to a process. It feels perfunctory. It's anticlimactic. It's not enjoyable. And so at the end of the day, it feels disconnected to the fun bits. And it feels like it's just there for the sake of making the achievement more difficult. Scythe just did it better as far as I'm concerned. It's true. There is a way around it, right? You could you could remove the corruption and then sure, know, get it for sure. free. But that's a small grape. And yep. before I get to the second way, I, I think it's like Scythe, let's talk about that action, there's different ways you can do actions. You're going to have your three main actions, which we'll talk about the flow of that later. And then there's some actions on your cards that you're going to be able to do, which is, you know, clearing the corruption or or achieving quests. And then there's actions that are on the board that not only do you have to go out and explore the hex and flip it over, but you're going to have to remove the corruption that are on those hexes. Very is- much like innovation, although this is a bit of a stretch in terms of comparison. The majority of actions... The fundamental question, how do I do this action? The answer is, well, it depends. There's no default way to do it. <laughs> they're on cards, on the board, they're spread out all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about meld. You can't do that at the beginning of the game. Right. You gotta find the hex. You gotta you gotta remove it. Same with upgrading. Anyway, boasting, those things you have to go out and find. Second way I think it's like scythe is like I said, the the fundamental action selection. So your very first turn, you're going to have the choice of the three. It's move, play a card, or gather. And so moving is very simple. You have to move one to three spaces to a different hex. The play is taking a card that is in your hand, quotation marks, (laughs) and move it to the right-hand side, which is your active area. Don't say hand, because it's not in your hand anymore. It's true. (laughs) And so you'll get the resources that are on that card. And if you happen to have the proper worker to place on that card, then you'll get its action as well. And then there's gather, which is activating the hex that it's on. It's sort of like harvesting in, in scythe, and then you get to do, which is a way to get workers at the beginning of the game, which is a way to pick up cards and later on melding. And it's and I think it has that same sort of feel where you always feel you're doing a sub-standard turn. It's like, okay, well, I need to do this. Because after the very first turn where you get to do all three, then you have to move your marker up and cover one of those three fundamental actions. And then you only get to do the other two. On your next turn, you have to move it to a different one. So much like Scythe, where you have to move the action marker, you have to move this thing, and you always think you're doing suboptimal things in order to achieve what you want. So you're trying to make these, you know, very accurate decisions, and then you can waste a whole turn and refresh and 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 start this whole process all over again, which you'll get all three and then move up and go back into this shifting back and forth. I think it's very well done and definitely gives you that scythe feel. I, I think it's pretty good. I don't know about very well done. It, I, I agree with you that it feels very, very similar to scythe in terms of the trade-offs that it forces you to consider. And it definitely forces you to adapt sometimes to changing situations. 
I did prefer, this isn't so much about the fundamental action selection mechanism of Scythe. I did quite like how the major actions in Scythe, so, you know, the ones that actually advance your victory conditions by themselves, were still on your player board and were still actions that you did, rather than having to wait for the right map condition to arrive and then go to do this anticlimactic thing called boast. But yes, you do, ha you are in a, a situation where the thing that you really want to do, the most efficient action, is often just outside your reach, and that in forms the fundamental tension pretty well. Well, I just like it, how it flows. Much like Scythe, the actions are very small. You're just moving, or you're playing a card, or you're or you're picking up things, and then it's the next player's turn. So it could, it can at some most times move very quickly. It's weird. I feel like the downtime in Expeditions is worse than it is in Scythe. I've played Scythe with five or six players with no complaints. Whereas I've played Expeditions, I've tinkered around with the solo system. The solo system is fine for what it's worth. Uh, much much less cumbersome than than action selection in the Otoma system for Scythe, because again the game is more focused. But I played Expeditions mostly with three and four. I haven't played it with five. I don't think I'd want to. Well, I think I th I think in Expeditions you have your turns ready quicker, so you're just waiting for your turn. Where with Scythe you have much more options, so you're sort of weighing out your options while it's not your turn. So you're still thinking, and I think that's why it makes it maybe it feels that it moves quicker okay well there are two things and again I, I scythe i think is the natural comparison set not just because it's the same designer same publisher same artist but because it's it's expeditions is kind of built as a sequel and borrows a lot of the same feel inside the top action that you do is usually relatively straightforward it is one thing and then the game tells you tell the next player to start if you do the bottom half of the action which is more accounting based you just do that on your own time between rounds that, I think, is a small element that contributes to the game flow considerably. And number two, you care more about what everyone else is doing as a general rule. New resources pop up on the map, you might reconsider to decide to go steal them. Somebody else makes a push on your flank, you start worrying about it. Someone else withdraws, you start thinking about new territory. Someone gets to the factory, you figure, I guess I'm not doing that anymore, whatever. In the context of expeditions, there is only one aspect of player interaction. Well, I think there was two. Okay. And I really feel... Let me start with the one that I've observed, okay. and the second one well, you can so, And I first want to say that, unfortunately, I think they're just the, the fundamentally basic player interaction <laughs> mechanisms, right? Oh, you're right. So there's the, yes, there's the, I got there first. Yes. Which is, dovetails with our previous complaint, there's one item available on the display that you desperately need. Someone took it, now it's gone, now there are no items on the display. Yes. But Expeditions has what I think is one of, if not my absolute least favorite element of player interaction, which is the unintentional block. I am going to a certain place for whatever reason. It may or may not have anything to do with what you wanted to do. And often I'm completely unaware of what it is that you want to do. But because I'm sitting there, you can't get done what you need to get done. And you have to spin your wheels or decide to completely go off in a different direction. It's one of the reasons why I don't like love. People go and activate buildings in Havre. They're sitting on the building. They then they're messing they're messing around with resources. They're just sitting there. Everyone's like, "I need to get to the building." And sometimes, in the case of Havre, I'll give credit where credit is due. Sometimes you're there. It's like, "Ah, I sat there for a reason, just to die to you." But in expeditions, I honestly feel as though most of the time the person's there just doing something else, and you're just waiting for them to leave. So you can go do your thing. I, I don't think it's enjoyable. I don't think it adds to tension. I just think it adds to frustration and arbitrariness. And it makes your turns feel like wasting time. Yeah, much like rolling to move. Also in Expeditions. It's like talking to you. 
Also in expeditions, you get to have uh, unique leaders. Everyone has a unique leader, and they come with a companion. And not only yeah, that, they're mostly the same. The cards are almost identical. True. And not only that, you have a player board as well that has a special ability as well. Yeah, the mech ability is more consequential. And and how they interact with each other is very interesting as well. I think leads, it does change up the gameplay a little bit every time. Yeah, the the, the mech, sure. I'm not so much the leaders. The, the the leaders and the companions that you start with are mostly they're like rounding errors, just a subtle. Instead of two red and a blue, you get two blue and a red. And eh. well, some let you, some let you pick up cards off the table. Some let you do other things. Yeah, those are the companions, and that is if you don't use them to vanquish. Yes. Yes. If you don't use them for the thing for which they are primarily designed, they have different. They have a different secondary ability. Absolutely, that is that is true. Ultimately, when playing expeditions, I feel like I'm playing a very good multiplayer solitaire tableau builder. But in that process, it reminds me that there are also better, not exclusively, not primarily multiplayer solitaire tableau builders. So the natural comparison class to me, in terms of game feel is less scythe and more things like 51st State Master Set, more things like Innovation, more things like PAX games, right? And as far as the the mechanical details go, it does have a lot to do with scythe, but I'd rather play scythe as well. For what it's worth, I also think that the in terms of rendering a world, I mean, Jamie Stegmaier and, and Jacob Brzezowski talk a lot about this 1920 plus universe and a lot of ink has been spilled on the artwork of Jacob Brzezowski. For what it's worth, I will note that they acknowledge in the rule book this time that Jacob Brzezowski has effectively drawn on other pieces of, of artwork for his inspiration. There was a whole controversy where it was revealed that Jacob Brzezowski was basically tracing. Is that, is that a play on words drawn on? <laughs> exactly. Drawing from. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. More or less. But the thing is, is that, so it's very clear now that his art style, this is for what is worth more grist for the mill of the whole AI art conversation, right? About what is the nature of inspiration and how much can you draw on other sources of artwork? Literally. Yeah, exactly. So there are the, the pastoral elements, the elements of, you know, various animals and people and landscapes and so forth. Those are rendered in bright and vivid color. And those seem to be mostly the stuff that Jacob Brzezowski has traced. The stuff that he adds to it is mostly the sort of uh, uh, steampunkish kind of mech stuff. And you were the one who first observed it primarily with reference to the cover art. A lot of it is super blurry. I went back and I looked at a lot of the scythe art. It's not that blurry. In the scythe art, you see mechs, you see various machines, but the artwork and expeditions, the stuff that gives the world its personality that makes it different from any other sort of, you know, naturalistic, pastoral, realist representation is the steampunky Tesla-esque kind of mech stuff. And that stuff seems like it's been hit with a soft focus lens or in the case of the humans with various technologies, it's all super dark and oversaturated. And so it looks a lot more slapdash. There's an attempt to make some story about how there are these meteors and corruption and there's a bear with tentacles and things like that. That disappears immediately. As abstract as Scythe sometimes feels, Expeditions feels at least twice as much so. Agreed. But I feel the overall production is very good. The cards are nice and thick. The mechs look amazing. The mechs do look very nice. They come with color. In in the minis, not on the cards. No, not on the cards. The the miniatures that are huge and chunkers, they come with color rings. You have these nice uh, resource tokens. The tiles are gigantic and huge. I like the production. It's a solid production. I mean, Stonemaier Games always puts out a, a quality product in terms of physical materials. 
The insert is very functional. There's already room for expansion content <laughs> because uh, Stonemaier is nothing if not uh, business-oriented. And for what it's worth, if there's an expansion, I'd be vaguely curious to see what they do with it. It could just be like the, scythe, the, you know, the first Scythe expansions, like here's some more factions and nothing else. I would like them to try to do something more interesting with the cards for a first expansion because, as I say, I very much enjoy the fundamental tension of the card management and how that dovetails with the map element. Except insofar as it deals with unintentional blocking and the rest of it being entirely multiplayer solitaire. There is just enough variety, there's just enough interest, just enough tension to make me interested in playing Expeditions some more. But I think that when you compare it to a very crowded field of other tableau builders that offer more player interaction and a more satisfying route to victory, instead of putting in arbitrary and unsatisfying end caps to my actions, I don't know that Expeditions is situated very well in the current market. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. But like you said, it was very fun to play it. We played it a bunch. I love the, the end game score is very quick. Yes. You're going to get points for the coins. Again, it's very focused. And some, yeah. yeah. Points for the coins, just like Scythe. You're going to get points for how many stars you've put out based on how many quests you've done. You're going to get... We didn't really talk about the corruption. Every time you flip up a tile, it'll tell you to put X number of corruption on it. You draw these tiles from the bag. There's two types, and you spend the two types of resources that you track in order to get rid of them. One of the goals is to have seven of these tokens. That's you put out a star. And at the end of the game, each of these tokens is worth two as well. It's the, it, it is one of the failed attempts, I think, to make the universe feel certain thematic. It's the vanquish action. It is you overcoming the corruption, the corruption in the land. In point of fact, it's you buying resources from a market that's somewhat variable. And then there's the upgrades. We didn't talk too much about them, but if you uh, activate them for their action, you can sort of leave them in your active area until you do a refresh, and then they sort of boost up other actions that you do. And then you can actually slot them under your board, so they'll just stay there and you don't need a worker on them. And they also have a printed victory point cost on them. So you just add up your victory points, and believe it or not, whoever has the most wins. <laughs> yes, I mean, and the scoring doesn't end up feeling very sprawling or disconnected the way a number of other tableau builders do. But again, in compared to some of the ones that I've already mentioned ad nauseum, I'd much rather play those. It's perfectly pleasing. I do like the fundamental card play mechanism. I just wished more had been done with it. I wish that this universe were better realized, which is strange because of how much effort they've made into making this connect to a previous product line. And indeed, when you compare it to the previous iteration of the product line, I don't think it compares very favorably on a number of ways, uh, particularly in terms of player interaction, tempo, and downtime. But that having been said, with all of these caveats in play, as I say, the fundamental card action, so I, uh, card play and tension introduced therein, I think is well done. Yeah, I love the flow. I love the action selection. Would play anytime. Expeditions. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all of our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you for having decided to spend some of your precious time with us. We really, really do appreciate it. Please do take care and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. 
Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right. But remember, you are so very wrong. <laughs>